a good number present again this evening. We have visitors. We're glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us at other opportunities. Last Lord's Day evening, we began a study of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. So you might be turning in your Bibles to that text. We're going to notice that text and several others that relate to that. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. Within those two verses, we have nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Those nine are love, joy, and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In our first of three studies, we looked at love and joy and peace. Tonight in our study, we're going to focus on three more long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. Seemingly, these are grouped by threes, though not exclusively in each one of these categories. The first three of those, the love, joy, and peace, turn our thoughts toward God. Not saying that there's not other things involved, such as our relationship to man, but those do turn our thoughts toward God. Long-suffering, kindness, and goodness turn our attention toward fellow man, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control turn our focus toward self and what we need to do toward self. Again, those are not exclusive categories, but it seems that they are grouped by threes in our text. Let's remind ourselves what the fruit of the Spirit is. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, if you have your Bible open to the book of Galatians, turn to Galatians 5 if you're not already there. And I want us to notice that in Galatians chapter 5, that this fruit of the Spirit is the result that comes from following the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We noticed last time at verse 16 about walking in the Spirit, verse 18 being led by the Spirit, and verse 25 again, uh, in verse 25, living in the Spirit. So here are three verses in the context that talk about being led, being influenced by the Holy Spirit. So this is the result that comes from following after the Holy Spirit. It refers to the attitudes and dispositions that are developed as a result of following the guidance of the Holy Spirit within the written word. We pointed out last time that the fruit here is singular, not fruits. There is one fruit that has nine characteristics. And so the point is that we develop all of those. It's not that we have fruits and we can choose which one of those we want. I want the first three, but not the next three. Or I want the first four, but I'll leave off the rest. But I take all of those if I have the fruit of the Spirit in my heart. So let's pick up with our list and start now with long-suffering. One of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit is that I will have long-suffering if I follow the teachings of the Holy Spirit. So this is going to be somewhat of a word study tonight, so let's spend some time defining what long-suffering is. If I'm going to develop what the Holy Spirit is telling me to develop, I need to know what that characteristic is or what that word means. So what does long-suffering mean? What is the meaning of long-suffering? There says it means patience, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, especially in bearing troubles and ills. Patience, forbearance, long-suffering. Notice the last phrase. Slowness in avenging wrongs. 
When I have been done wrong, long-suffering means I'm going to be slow in avenging the wrong. There is a degree of patience within that. Let's go further. Vine says it means forbearance, patience, long-suffering. It's a compound word, makros, meaning long, and thumos, which means temper, so it means literally long temper, in contrast to being short-tempered. We'll come back to that later. It is a quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation, which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It doesn't come back quickly when I've been done wrong. It is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy. So you think about anger that someone reflects when they've been done wrong. This is the opposite of that. It is the slowness to avenge or show revenge. Trent says this. It is the long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action or to passion. Again, contrasted to being quick-tempered. Instead of being one who is quick and has a short fuse and reacts quickly, they're long-suffering, they're long-tempered, and they're slow or they're long-holding out before they give room to action. Barclay defines this as saying that it, we might well translate it, the power to see things through. So if I'm long-suffering, I have the power to see things through. But I'm going to so see through that, and I'm going to bear through that, and I'm going to suffer through that. Again, from Barclay. Barclay observes, he expressed, he says this word that is translated long-suffering expresses a certain attitude both to people and to events. It expresses the attitude to people which never loses patience with them. However unreasonable they may be, and which never loses hope for them, however unloving and unteachable they may be. Now that's not easy to do, and we're going to see that before we get through. That that's a very difficult thing for us to accomplish. It is the opposite of being short-tempered. It means to be, again, long-tempered. Rather than having the short fuse, it's a long fuse. Well, that's developing the characteristic of God without taking the time to develop each one of these God is a long-suffering God. God was long-suffering in the days of Noah, 1 Peter 3 and in verse 20, 2 Peter 3, 15 in Romans 2 and in verse 4. So God is a long-suffering God. He's long before he pulls the trigger. And so we ought to have that same kind of characteristic. Now I know what long-suffering is. How does it work in the life of the Christian? Well, I want us to begin in Matthew chapter 18. And listen carefully to this uh, first point. It is not saying that we can make demands of God, that's not the point here, but it's necessary that God have long-suffering toward us or we would indeed be hopeless, that's our point. Not that we can demand God to be long-suffering, we can't do that, but if God is not a long-suffering God, it has to fit into our lives from God or we are without hope. Notice in Matthew the 18th chapter beginning at verse 32, this is in the parable of the unforgiving servant. The master... <clears throat> The text says, beginning at verse 32, Then his master, after he had called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you the debt, because you begged of me. Should you not also have, notice the word, compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? I had compassion, I had pity. You should have shown the same thing. Drop down to verse 35. Here's the application. So my heavenly Father also will do each of you, if from his heart he does not forgive brother who's trespassing. Here's the parallel. God forgives, and we're to forgive like God forgives. Well, we're to have compassion and pity, which means God has compassion and pity, which means God is long-suffering. If it were not for the long-suffering of God, we have no hope. 
Well, long-suffering is essential for there to be unity. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, then we'll go back to Proverbs. In Ephesians 4, this is the passage that talks about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, verse 3. But just before that phrase, he talks about the attitudes that are essential for us to have unity. With all lowliness of mind, verse 2, and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. If we're going to have unity, if we're going to have harmony, there has to be a spirit of long-suffering. If you could imagine every person who is a Christian within a local congregation is short-tempered versus long-tempered, how long would we have harmony and how long would we have unity? Let's go to the book of Proverbs. We're going to spend a little time in Proverbs. So get your Bible and let's go to Proverbs chapter 15 and in verse 18. Again, we're talking about the being essential to unity. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he that is slow to anger, there's our long-suffering, allays contention. So the long-suffering person delays or puts off or prevents contentions. So you find a church where there is contentions, probably somebody is not long-suffering. But people who are long-suffering have a tendency toward uh, putting off or allaying contentions. Let's go to the 19th division of Proverbs. And I want us to see at verse 11 that it is the basis for forgiveness. Forgiveness is based upon the concept that we are long-suffering toward others. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. There's our long-suffering concept. And it is a glory, it is to his glory to overlook a transgression. Overlook a transgression in what sense? He ignores it? No. But he overlooks it in that he forgives that. That's to his discretion or to his wisdom that he does that. While we're in Proverbs, let's go to the 25th division. It is the basis for a good relationship. If we're going to have good relationships with others, we're going to have, indeed, to be long-suffering. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded. That is, if you're going to persuade someone, particularly someone in leadership, there's going to have to be long forbearance and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. So if we're going to have relationships, accomplish good, persuade others, there has to be this principle of long-suffering. Let's go to the 14th division now, and in verse 19, it is a manifestation of wisdom to be one who is long-suffering. Look at verse 29. He that is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he that is impulsive exalts folly. In other words, a long-suffering person has wisdom, but the short-tempered person, short-fused person, indeed shows that they are using foolishness. Let's go again to the 16th division one more time, and in verse 32, it is a manifestation of real power. So you say, if I'm long-suffering, that shows I'm weak. And, and I want to show that I'm strong, so I'm going to react quickly, and I'm going to hit back with a hammer hard as I can to show that indeed I'm strong. No, the opposite is true. Look at chapter 16 and verse 32. He that is slow to anger, that's long-suffering, is better than the mighty, and one who rules his spirit than the one who takes the city. So the one who has the power and the strength and the might to take a city is compared to one who can control their own spirit. So that's how it fits into the life and works in the life of the Christian. Now let's raise the question, how do I develop the spirit of being long-suffering? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I develop that first of all by developing the characteristic of love. That when I learn to love others, 
with this agape love we talked about this morning, when I have that love toward others, then I will be long-suffering toward them. How do I know? Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Here are the qualities and the characteristics of love, and the first thing he mentions is that love suffers long and is kind, and it does not envy and does not parade itself and is not puffed up and so on. But love suffers long. So if I'm not willing to suffer long, I'm lacking in love. If I have love, I'm going to suffer long. So here's the point. I need to learn to love those that have done us wrong. I need to learn to love those that irritate us. So there are going to be in your life someone that irritates you, that gets under your skin. Learn to love them. That may be hard, but learn to love them. You may have someone that's done you wrong. Learn to love them, and you will be more long-suffering toward them. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. What else can I do that I might develop the principle of long-suffering in my life, and that is I might spend some time praying for the Spirit and the, and the attitude and the character characteristic of being long-suffering. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 about the Colossians and his desire for the Colossians, and in fact his prayer for the Colossians, beginning at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard it, did not cease to pray for you. So we've continued to pray for you since the day we heard it. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So my prayer for you at Colossae is that you be filled with the wisdom, knowledge of God and with wisdom. Well, what's the end and the goal of having being filled with knowledge and with wisdom? Verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now he's not through. Look at verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering and joy. So Paul's prayer for them was, I want you to be filled with knowledge, I want you to be filled with wisdom, I want you to be long-suffering, and I want you to have peace, and I want you to have joy. So what can I do that I might develop the characteristic of being long-suffering? I can spend some time praying that God would help me to be long-suffering. Barclay made this interesting observation. He said it well may be said that this is the hardest task of all for an age in which we have made God made a God of speech. How true. We're living in an age where everything needs to be done fast. And we, we have great admiration for doing things quick and doing things fast. And here is something that says in the biblical principle, slow down just a little bit. And be long-suffering. Slow down before you react to the thing that has irritated you. The that has done you wrong, that may be indeed a hard characteristic to develop. But if we follow the teaching of the Spirit, then we are going to be long-suffering. Here's the second of the three that are mentioned in the second category of three, and that is kindness. That if we follow the teaching and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, there is going to be kindness in our hearts and in our practice. So let's define that. What does it mean? Well, the word it means, or is translated gentleness in the King James translation. M.R. Vincent says that it is a kindness which is useful or serviceable. It's not just a manifestation of an attitude, but it is a kindness that is useful or serviceable. In other words, it becomes of service. We'll see more about that in a moment. Vaughn says it's used of goodness of heart and kindness. The King James takes that word that is translated kindness and translates it with goodness, good, kindness, and gentleness. 
And so those are not all equal words, but those are words that have been used to translate the word that is translated kindness here. So it has to do with being good, has to do with gentleness, goodness. Plummer makes an interesting comment. Plummer defines it as the sympathetic kindness or sweetness of temper, which puts others at their ease and shrinks from giving pain. I want you to think about that. It is that spirit, that kindliness, that sympathetic kindliness or sweetness of temper that is where I have this sympathetic feeling toward others which puts them at ease and shrinks from giving pain toward them. So think now of putting that with long-suffering. I'm long-suffering. I'm, uh, I'm not short-tempered, but I'm going to be long-tempered. And at the same time, I'm going to try to put others at ease and shrink from giving pain in their direction. Luke 5, this is interesting, talks about the old wine being better. Remember that pa passage? The word better is the same word that's translated kindness here. In other words, it's better in the sense it's not sharp, it's not, it's not biting in taste, it's mellow. I'm not saying that the same word means exactly the same thing here in Luke 5 as it does in our text in Galatians 5, but it us an idea that it's better in the sense that it's not sharp and it's not bitter. So my dealings with others is not sharp, it's not bitter in my dealings with them, it's mellow like the better wine as per Luke chapter 5. There's another passage where that same word is used. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word translated easy comes from that same root word. It's not galling, it's not harsh. So my yoke is easy, it's not a harsh. Jesus is not harsh in his demands. Is there a, is there a requirement? Is it sometimes uh, difficult? Sure, there's some difficulty, but it's easy in the sense it's not harsh. It's not galling. In other words, it's a kind, gentle disposition that's not caustic, it's not harsh. Well, Psalm 100 in verses 4 and 5, and Psalm 145 in verse 9. Let's go to Psalm 145 as a sampling of this. We know this principle. But the psalmist in numerous passages, and Psalm 145 is just a sampling of that, that God is said to be both good and kind. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over, over all His works. So God is good toward all. He's kind toward all. We ought to develop those characteristics. Now let's see how that fits into the life of the Christian. I know what kindness means. And we're to have this spirit of kindness toward others. How does it fit in the life of a Christian? Well, let's go to Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 12. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians and Ephesians, you remember, are parallel. And they both deal with putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So Colossians 3 and in verse 12, in putting on the new man, he said, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. Notice that phrase of putting on. It is the idea of putting on a garment that you wear. As you put this garment on and put it around and wrap yourself with it and cover yourself with that, you're to put on some qualities like holy, uh, like uh, kindness and humbleness of mind and meekness and long-suffering. Both of those are qualities. You don't just show some, uh, you don't just show some principle of that occasionally in your life, but you clothe yourself with that. 
so that you're encompassed with this principle of kindness, encompassed with the principle of long-suffering. It's a characteristic of their life, not an occasional thing that they reflect and they show. He's kind here and kind there, but quite ugly in other occasions. This is a continual characteristic of their life. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, or chapter 4, excuse me. Again, I said these are parallel passages, parallel uh, books. Ephesians chapter 4, it has to do with how we deal with others. Again, we're talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Ephesians 4, like Colossians 3. And notice at verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So here are some things that have to do with dealing with people harshly and bitterly. Put that away from you. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. It's how we deal with one another. It's in that context. And that's the kind of life that the Christian is to live. Again, Barclay observes, the harshness and roughness and bitterness are banished by Christian kindness. And the mellow graciousness of Christian love remains. And so, <clears throat> when you talk about putting off the old man, the old man, it was the harsh man. The old man was the rough man and the bitter man. And all of that's banished by Christian kindness. So let's raise some questions. In light of our definitions, do you make others feel at ease with you? In other words, when you talk to others, when you deal with other Christians, when you uh, maybe confront them about something, that wherein there is a difference. Or maybe it's when you are just talking about things generally with someone. Do you make others feel at ease with you? Or do they not know when, when you're about to be biting and cutting and uh, the knife in and turn it? Do they know that you're going to be kind? Are they assured when you say, I'd like to talk with you, they know you're going to be kind and they know you're going to be that kind of person that has kindness toward them. They're, it's not going to be sharp, not going to be bitter, it's going to be mellow. Do they know that you will be gentle? Do they know you're going to be fair? Where when you walk away, they, the other person can say, you know what, I didn't agree with what they said, but they were fair when they dealt with me. I, I, I just have to agree that that was honorable, the way they dealt with me. Do they know that even in disagreement and rebuke, you're going to be kind and caring in that rebuke? Where you have to show disagreement, but you're still kind and you're, you're caring in that rebuke. Let's notice the last of the three we're going to study tonight goodness. What does goodness mean in this context? Well, it's difficult to define for this reason that goodness is both broad and general. Good is usually determined by the context in everyday language. For example, you may talk about you have a good dog and your neighbor is a good man and you admire someone having a good truck. Well, it certainly doesn't mean the same thing in every application, does it? Context is going to determine what you mean by the dog or by the truck or by the man or whatever the case may be. And the same thing is going to be true here. So the question is, in what way is this person who follows the teaching of the Spirit said to be good? In what ways? In what qualities? Thayer says that the word means uprightness of heart and life. 
so good in the sense that you have uprightness of life. You're following the teaching of the Holy Spirit. That's obviously included in that, if not uh, exclusive to that. Bond says it described that which being good in its character is beneficial in its effect. I like that definition. So if we develop goodness, we're good in our character and our constitutional and constitution, and then we become effective or good or beneficial in our effect. That is, we have good impact upon others. We have a good influence in our life because that's our character that we indeed are good people. Kenneth Wu says the word refers to that quality in a man who is ruled by and aims at what is good, namely the quality of moral worth. Trying to be of moral value, moral worth. Berkeley contrasted to justice. This is interesting to me, to get this contrast that Berkeley shows. He says, justice, they say, is the quality which gives a man what is due him. Well, we understand that. Someone has done wrong, what's due them is, is they ought to be punished for that. No mercy at all. But goodness is the quality which is out to do far more than that. And which desires to give a man all that he is to his benefit and help. Not just what he may deserve, but give him more than that. That's goodness. Berkeley says the man who is just sticks to the letter of his bond. The man who is good goes beyond that. So when it talks about goodness, what, what, do you see what Berkeley just said? That, that the idea of being a, a man who is just, he's a just man. He does exactly what he promised he would do. But the good man goes beyond what he promised and may do even more. The just person may do what he's required to do, but the good man does even more than that. The, the person who is just may, may give the person what they deserve. They deserve some help. But the good person goes further than that. It is the concept of generosity. Generosity is the idea that Barclay is driving at. Now this becomes a little more technical, but there is a difference in the goodness and the kindness here. What is that difference? I won't read every word of this long definition from Vine, but Vine makes this observation. He's he, he quotes Trench, you follow Jerome, who distinguishes between goodness and kindness that's just been mentioned in the context. And he says the former, that is kindness, is the kindlier aspect of goodness, but the latter, that is goodness, is the sterner qualities by which good is done toward others, is not necessarily by gentle means. What does he mean? Well, he gives an example. Jesus was good when he cleansed the temple in John 2, didn't he? And when he rebuked the Pharisees here in Matthew chapter 23, in a number of verses all through chapter 23, Lightfoot regards kindness as the kindly disposition toward others where goodness is the kindly activity on their behalf. One is an attitude and the other is the manifestation of that attitude. Now let's talk about how that works in the life of the Christian. Let's start with Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 describes Barnabas as a good man. Let's see in verse 24. Acts chapter 11 and in verse 24, the news of this, and backing up to verse 22, news of the things, that is the conversion of the people at Antioch, came to the church at Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. And when he came in and seen the grace of God, he was encouraged, etc. For he was, verse 24, a good man. 
Could you be described as a good man or a good woman in, this, in the sense of this text? Barnabas was said to be a good man. Not every person is a good man. Not every woman's a good woman. But Barnabas was said to be a good man. Now what about the qualities in the context that made him good? Well, look at verse 23. He was the kind of person that delighted in the progress of others. He doesn't just think about himself, but he thinks about the progress of others. When he came to Antioch, verse 23, and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. That's not dealing with him personally. He's already a Christian. He's already received the grace of God. But he was glad when he got to Antioch and found out that others had received the grace of God. He was delightful. He was glad. He rejoiced over the conversion of the people there at Antioch. Here's something else. Chapter 11 and verse 23. He was an encourager. That's what made him a good man. Notice that when he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue in the Lord. He was an encourager. That's made, that made him a good man. He had goodness about him. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. This is not the first time we've seen him, so let's go back to Acts chapter 4. We, we were introduced to him in Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 36. He was a man who was liberal with good words. In fact, his name was Joseph, was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. In other words, they called him the encourager, the son of encouragement. Why did they do that? Because he was an encourager. He was liberal with good words, that he knew how to say things that encouraged and uplifted others and encouraged them to do the right thing and continue with purpose of heart. That's not all. Same context. He was generous with his possessions. Because, verse 37 says, he, that is, Joseph, or having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That they might take care of those who indeed were in need. Let's go to Acts 9. Notice another example of goodness. Barnabas was a good man. Dorcas was a good woman. Acts 9 and verse 36, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha translated Dorcas, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds which she did. What is it about her that was so good? Well, she had good works and charitable deeds, the text says. One of the things she had done, according to verse 39, is she had made garments for other people. She had done things in interest of others. Here was the manifestation of that kindness that we just talked about a few moments ago. And that's how that fits into the life of a Christian. One other passage, Galatians 6 and in verse 10, we're to do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. That is, this is something showing goodness is not just to our family, not just to our friends, not even just to our brethren, but to the whole world. Do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. Well, what have we seen in our study tonight? Well, here are three more fruit or characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. These are not three separate fruits. These are three characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. There was love, there's joy, there's peace. And now tonight we have long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. And Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we will then finish the last three that are found in our text. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ? The Son of the living God, would you repent of your sins, acknowledge the faith that you have, 
be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?